Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. There has been a flood of news this evening with major new developments related to the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation. And there is brand new reporting regarding financial payments made not to Clarence, but to Ginny Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court justice who was already under fire today. And we are going to get to all of it tonight. But first, before all that, there is this. Do you remember during the peak of the pandemic when people would bang pots and pans outside their windows and clap and cheer for essential workers every night at 7 p.m.? Well, this is kind of like that, but only for MAGA diehards. Since August, almost nightly, Trump supporters have met outside the D.C. jail. And at about 9 p.m., the January 6th defendants inside the jail, they flicker their lights on and off. And that's because they're signaling it's time for everyone inside and outside to sing the Star Spangled Banner. Washington Post reports that they do that on most nights. Former President Trump even recorded and released a rendition of the national anthem using these guys as like a backup choir. He then proceeded to play it on stage, hand on heart, in advance of his first major campaign rally in Waco, Texas. All of which is amazing on its face, but even more amazing when you realize who these backup singers actually are. The Washington Post identified some of the men in the video, and we're not going to go through all of them. But just as a sampling, this is Jonathan Mellis. He is awaiting trial. The U.S. Attorney's Office identifies Mellis as this man here in this video from January 6th, where he is beating police officers with a stick. And this is the guy who appears to be leading the song, Ryan Nichols. He's also awaiting trial. Here you can see him on January 6th, as identified by the Justice Department, assaulting police officers with a chemical spray. Mr. Nichols is also famous for this. I'm telling you what, I'm hearing the pence. I'm hearing the pence just caved. No. Is that true? I didn't I'm hear hearing, I'm hearing no. reports the pence caved. No I'm way. telling you, if pence caved, we're going to drag no. through the streets. You politicians are going to get drugged through the streets. The Department of Justice has charged more than a thousand people with crimes related to January 6th. And even now, more than two years later, people are still being arrested. Just this week, the FBI arrested a man they allege set off this explosive device in a Capitol tunnel that day. As you can see, the explosive was thrown into a tunnel packed with police officers who were defending the Capitol. They're jammed in there like sardines. So these individual arrests are a hugely important part of getting accountability for what happened that day. A lot of these crimes were incredibly violent. But as violent as January 6th was, as much as the mass of people each seemingly had their own vendetta that day, what is increasingly increasingly apparent 
is that a lot of these people may have actually been pawns. Now, that is not to say that many of them weren't violent and incredibly focused on violence. So we just stormed the Capitol, yeah, took did. the mother place back. <laughs> that was so much fun. So Woo! much America. So Woo! much America. January 6th will be a day in infamy. Yes, yes. <laughs> That was Joseph Biggs, and in that video, he seems like he could really be any random January 6th writer. But the truth is that he was not. Joseph Biggs was a leader, one of the leaders of the far-right group, the Proud Boys. Today, Biggs and three other members of the Proud Boys were convicted on federal charges of seditious conspiracy for their role in January 6th. On the conspiracy counts alone, these Proud Boy leaders could face a maximum of nearly 50 years in prison. And they were also found guilty of other felonies. Now, to understand the government's case here, it is important to know just how key the Proud Boys were to the attack on the Capitol that day. The New York Times spent months building on the work of online sleuths and watching hundreds of hours of video to identify who in the crowd that day were the Proud Boys. This is footage of the very first breach the first time rioters got past police barricades. It looks like chaos, it looks like a mob just overtaking the police. But take a look at how the New York Times traced the role of the Proud Boys and one of their leaders, again, Joe Biggs, in that first breach. In what is widely viewed as a tipping point, a protester named Ryan Samsel talks to Joe Biggs and immediately confronts the police. Biggs and other leaders look on. Samsel later told the FBI that Biggs encouraged him to confront the police, something Biggs denies. As the crowd pushes forward, many of the Proud Boys join in. They start removing barricades and urge others on. A chain reaction has been set off. The attack on the Capitol has begun. Now, it was initially pretty hard to identify all this movement as coordinated, in part because, for the most part, the Proud Boys dressed as what one of them referred to as normies, regulars in the crowd. But once the New York Times ID'd these guys, they noticed a pattern. They noticed a playbook in action. Proud Boys would rile up the crowd near one of the key entry points to the Capitol, encouraging the crowd to push past police. They would then remove whatever barriers were in that crowd's way, whether that meant moving literal barricades or using chemical spray on police officers so the crowds could push past them. When they met too much police resistance, they would back off, regroup, and they would head to another entry point. And here they are making the second breach of the day on the east side of the Capitol. For hours, hundreds of protesters have remained behind the barricades. But within minutes of these Proud Boys arriving, the police will be overrun. It's their playbook in action again. One of Lork's team antagonizes officers at the front, while another clears away barricades. Oh, she's about to throw it! Oh, your man's crazy. The momentum tips. The crowd easily breaks through the police line and sweeps through the next barrier as Proud Boys take down fence after fence. Over and over again, the Proud Boys use the same tactics. Rile up the crowd, remove the barriers, allow the crowds to push through. 
The Times reports that the Proud Boys were critical players in five major advances to breach the Capitol. They were using the crowds as a tool, and it worked. And that is why today's conviction was so important. These weren't random members of the mob. They were the leaders of it. And it turns out one of the things we learned in this trial was that not only was the mob a tool of the Proud Boys, but internally within the far right group itself, the leaders of the Proud Boys were using their lower level members, the lower level Proud Boys, as pawns as well. Here's an example. During the trial, a now former Proud Boy, a witness who cooperated with the government, he testified that he was surprised when the group's leaders, like Joe Biggs, when they marched about 200 Proud Boys away from Trump's speech and towards the Capitol. But when the rioters burst through the barricades minutes after the Proud Boys arrived, he realized that this may have been the plan all along. Quote, I was putting two and two together, he recalled, and saying, this is it. Now, the fact that the Proud Boys leaders were using their own members as pawns isn't just interesting. It is also important, legally speaking. One of the guys who was convicted today, the former chairman of the Proud Boys, a man named Enrique Tarrio, he wasn't even in Washington on January 6th. Tarrio was kicked out of the city by a local judge days earlier for a separate legal matter. But today, the jury still found Mr. Tarrio culpable. And when you zoom out, and look at not just the Proud Boys, but at the bigger picture of accountability for January 6th, that verdict, that call is really important, that you didn't have to be at the Capitol itself, riling up the crowd and directing troop movements. You didn't have to be there to be guilty of seditious conspiracy. Today's ruling marks the third group convicted of seditious conspiracy charges related to January 6th. Ten convicted between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, plus another four who pleaded guilty. So 14 total. The Proud Boys leaders used their members as pawns, who in turn used the crowd as pawns. And now leaders of the Proud Boys are being held to account. But there is still one major leader who is missing here. The person who sits at the top of all of this. Who would you like me to condemn? Proud Boys. Boys, Stand back and stand by. During the trial, the Department of Justice alleged that the Proud Boys saw themselves as Donald Trump's army, quote, lined up behind Donald Trump and ready to commit violence on his behalf. Even the defense attorneys, the people defending the Proud Boys in this case, they placed the blame for what happened that day on President Trump. So now that this is done, now that these middle managers of the mob are facing what could be the rest of their lives in prison, what happens to Donald Trump? After three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, specifically conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. Our work will continue. Our work will continue. Joining us now are Roger Parloff, senior editor at Lawfare, who has been covering the Proud Boys trail, trial from day one and was in the courtroom today. Also with us tonight, Mary McCord, visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Mary and Roger, it is great to see both of you. Mary, I would just first like to go to you on the novel legal theory sort of that is being tested here to secure a conviction on a very old charge. What did you make of it and why is it important? 
Well, I think all three of these trials, the two Oath Keepers trials and the Proud Boys trials, have been important because it showed that the department did what I think it was correct in doing, which is it charged the offense that best described what happened here, which was a conspiracy to use force to hinder or delay the operation of U.S. law, that U.S. law being the constitutionally and statutorily required meeting of the joint session of Congress to count the Electoral College ballots, to actually certify the election. And so this was an, an effort to use force to undermine the will of the voters, undermine the will of the people, and prevent the peaceful transition of power. And, you know, <clears throat> you referred to it as sort of being novel. The, it's, you know, it's an old statute. It's been around a long time. So it's not so much that it's a novel legal theory. It's just that the, the federal government has not been very successful in the past when it has used this charge, particularly against what I would say refer to as domestic extremists. The government has had more success when it's used this charge against Islamist extremists, but not against those who are anti-government, oftentimes also anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, anti-other, and want to overthrow the government for a variety of reasons. In this case, of course, it being uh, the reason to keep former President Trump in office. So I think it was very important that the department use this charge, even though other charges it brought and obtained guilty convictions, uh, guilty verdicts on, also are 20-year offenses. So it's not like this charge is a, you know, a dramatically longer period of incarceration for which these um, defendants now could be sentenced. Other charges have serious 20-year penalties, just like seditious conspiracy. But it's important because it really described what they did. And so uh, really hats off to the department for building those cases. Yeah. And Roger, I would go to you in terms of the novelty. I think what I was most focusing on is this notion that you didn't have to be at the Capitol mm. that day to be guilty of seditious conspiracy, because the conceit from the Justice Department was, look, you could have directed the the mob and lower level, lower level Proud Boys to be used as pawns, as tools in the effort to uh, carry out this seditious conspiracy. This was an uphill climb in some respects for the DOJ, given its history that Mary so eloquently laid out. What was the outlook in the courtroom through this extended trial? Well, there was some concern about uh, tar whether Enrique Tarrio, the top defendant in a way, the, the national chairman of the Proud Boys at that time, could be convicted, whether the jury would think that, you know, conducting uh, the fact that he was in Baltimore throughout all of this puts him in a, certainly puts him in a different uh, situation. But you had his involvement in really creating the chapter, uh, a special chapter that was created on December 12th, the day after you remember the uh, uh, Donald Trump called everybody to uh, to Washington with the the famous December 19 tweet um, will be wild he he starts the chapter the next day it's a highly secretive chapter um, it's devoted to January 6th he appoints the leaders the leaders hand select 10 people each and as it gets closer and closer to January 6th there are more and more references in the uh, telegram and the encrypted telegram chats to the Capitol, to violence, to um, maybe we ought to uh, raise some bail money. And then on the day of the event, he's in Baltimore, yes, but he is, he's on parlor um, as the riot is taking place, saying things like, um, 
uh, proud of my boys. Uh, do what uh, what you must what must be done. Don't effing leave. 1776. Uh, he says something to the effect that um, uh, Washington D.C. doesn't exist anymore. It's now the city of the people of the United States. Um, come and take it. And then, most damaging of all, he um, writes a, a telegram chat uh, to the governing body of the Proud Boys called the Elders and says, make no mistake, we did this. So that's how you build yeah, a conspiracy that, case. A, it that doesn't, is how you build a yeah. conspiracy case. Mary, yeah. how do you see this ruling uh, potentially affecting a case that the DOJ may be building against Donald Trump on January 6th? Yeah, well, just one comment before that on the novel theory. Just think about, you know, viewers can think about a drug conspiracy. Oftentimes, the one at the top of that conspiracy, he's not the one selling the drugs, right? But he's conspiracy is about an agreement to, to violate the law. And so Tario certainly didn't need to be there. So as far as the special counsel's investigation and Jack Smith, obviously, this is going to be something that, you know, that, that makes them, I think, feel uh, emboldened that, that they're, whatever they decide to do, whatever they think that there's evidence to support in terms of charges against Donald Trump and those in his inner circle. I think they're going to feel that, you know, they the, the department is coming off three successes uh, in a row on seditious conspiracy charges, as well as successes in so many other cases. And that, um, you know, the story that that is being told repeatedly to juries is something that juries are are listening to and they are returning the verdict that is supported by the evidence. So what Jack Smith is, you know, looking at beyond, of course, Trump's and those in his inner circle involvement in, as you said, sort of using the people and the mob as, as his pawns is also how much the fraudulent electors scheme played into this actual assault on mm. the Capitol, uh, because there's much evidence of Trump knowing about the scheme to send up false slates of electors, Trump electors from the states that Trump did not win, seven different swing states, and then put the pressure on Mike Pence, and this is so critically important, to actually either count those votes instead of the legitimate slates of electors, or just reject those votes completely, something that Mike Pence told him repeatedly he did not have the authority to do, yet former President Trump went out to the public again repeatedly and told them he does have the power to do this. You know, it's a time for him to use courage. And in many ways, what the former president did was sick this mob on Mike Pence that day. We know that the former president was watching television, watching the attack on the Capitol, knew that Mike Pence had barely gotten out of the Senate chambers and down the hallways and away from the crowd and knew that the crowd was chanting, hang Mike Pence and had erected a gallows on the grounds. So these are all things that uh, Jack Smith and his team are going to be looking at Trump's knowledge of all of this as he was, you know, in many ways, as you indicated, sort of sitting at the top. Using the crowd as a tool. I, uh, for people, Roger, who were not in the courtroom, Trump's name was invoked a lot by both the prosecution and the defense. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you, you sort of uh, alluded to it in your opening. Um, yeah, he was part of each side's narrative. Um, the, for the government, of course, it really began with the uh, uh, September 29th, the presidential debate, Stand Back, Stand By, which uh, had an enormous impact on uh, Proud Boy recruiting. And then there was the 
tweet, as I mentioned, December 19th, that triggers the creation of this, um, of this, uh, MOSD. Uh, it was called the Ministry of Self-Defense. That was the special chapter to, uh, uh, to approach, uh, January 6th. The, de- the, uh, defendants, um, also, uh, at least two of them in particular really blamed, uh, um, uh, Trump for the events. And the, the, the claim was this wasn't a conspiracy. Uh, the Proud Boys basically reacted to a spontaneous riot the way a uh, thousand or two thousand other people did. And, uh, and that the person to blame, uh, was Trump. And, uh, so they, you know, at, tr- at 12.17 p.m., uh, Trump says, uh, uh, you need to fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. And uh, 36 minutes later, the barricade falls. So he's saying, well, it's not that the Proud Boys al- uh, arrived at that barrier, uh, 200 of them, uh, three minutes before the barrier fell. It's, it's that there were all these people from the Ellipse gradually getting there, too. So uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was uh, <laughs> in both narratives. Uh, and, you know, they're not mutually exclusive theories of, of what happened. Exactly. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't, it's not binary. Uh, a lot of causes went into, uh, uh, he instigated the Proud Boys to do what he did, and he instigated other groups. But uh, the Proud Boys, the Proud Boys did, uh, the jury found, uh, uh, act as a consp- in a conspiracy. Donald Trump loves having his name mentioned, perhaps not this much. Roger Parloff, thank you for joining us tonight and for your coverage throughout this trial. Mary McCord, please hang back if you can. We have a very big story coming up that I would love to get your thoughts on. When we come back, yet another story tonight involving secret money being funneled to both Ginny and Clarence Thomas. And no, this is not the story you woke up to this morning. It is new. Stay with us. But right up next, new details in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation. There are reports of an insider cooperating witness. There are alleged gaps in the security footage. And now prosecutors are asking questions about Trump's relation to a new Saudi financed golf league. All of that is coming up next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
There is some brand new reporting tonight on the Justice Department's intensifying investigation into Donald Trump's potential mishandling of classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago. According to The New York Times, federal prosecutors have obtained the confidential cooperation of a witness who worked at Mar-a-Lago as part of special counsel Jack Smith's probe. Specifically, Smith is reportedly investigating whether Trump ordered boxes of classified material moved from a storage room on the premises as federal investigators attempted to retrieve those boxes. The report cites multiple people familiar with this inquiry. The DOJ has been interested in Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage that captured these boxes of documents being moved around. And now we are learning, again, according to this reporting from The Times, that investigators are looking into the handling of that surveillance footage itself. To get to the bottom of what happened, the DOJ has apparently issued a wave of new subpoenas and gotten grand jury testimony, including testimony from two of Trump's longtime allies who appeared before the federal grand jury today. Matthew Calamari Sr., who is the chief operating officer of the Trump Organization, and his son, Matthew Calamari Jr., who is the Trump Organization's corporate director of security, Those men are among the Trump world figures who may have insight into the handling of that Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage. Now, the reason for this new interest in that camera footage is this. Back in October, The Washington Post reported that Walt Nauda, Trump's sort of body man, told investigators that after Trump was issued a subpoena last spring for any classified documents that remained at Mar-a-Lago, Trump himself directed Mr. Nauda to move boxes of documents. At this point, prosecutors believe that Mr. Nauda did not give investigators an accurate account of what exactly went down. And so they're now attempting to learn more about the movement of those boxes. One person told The Times that prosecutors have also questioned a number of witnesses about gaps in the security footage. Gaps in the security footage that may be key evidence as to whether Trump tried to hide boxes of government records from the government. So, yes, that would be of interest to investigators. And there is more. According to The Times, a previously unreported subpoena to the Trump Organization sought records pertaining to Mr. Trump's dealings with a Saudi-backed professional golf venture known as Live Golf. Which, of course, is holding Saudi bankroll tournaments at Trump's golf courts, golf resorts. I mean, what it writes itself. Joining us once again is Mary McCord, executive director of Georgetown Law's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Mary, uh, let's first start with the, uh, the notion that the DOJ has a cooperating witness. How meaningful is that? And the search that they are presently undertaking to find out what went down with the security footage. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, this is a story that just it seems like every day there's new developments here. And certainly in any investigation like this, the department would be looking for cooperators, not just one, but preferably more than one. Um, and it does seem from this reporting that they have someone they, who's got some inside information, someone, an employee at Mar-a-Lago. And that's really key because, you know, they need to get in inside, you know, that building and figure out what was happening when, because I think one of the things that's most significant about this investigation is the potential for obstruction of justice charges. I mean, I've said all along, if this was just about 
uh, classified documents being taken to Mar-a-Lago and being promptly returned after they were discovered, I don't think we would be even talking about a criminal investigation. But that's not at all what happened. And what seems in many ways to be some of the most significant information here is what kind of actions did Trump potentially order uh, after he was subpoenaed to try to make sure that the documents that the government was looking for did not get turned over to the government. And I think this new reporting about seeking the business records with respect to the Saudi uh, golf tournament uh, businesses, you know, this— makes you also think that the government is, is again, trying to figure out why was Trump trying yes. to obstruct? What was he worried about, right? And so I think that's getting, again, to his motivation. I mean, do are we supposed to infer from that that potentially the government thinks that the Saudis were in a reason why Trump may have been holding on to these documents? So, you know, it's still so early to tell. There could be all kinds of reasons for that subpoena, even things that we haven't even, you know, considered. But one of them, I think, could be uh, either is there something that—I mean, at, the, at its worst, is there something that Trump wants to share, right, with a foreign government? Um, and that, of course, goes to the heart of sort of the mishandling of classified information and the vulnerability to information being shared with with people and governments who are not entitled to be in possession of it, uh, information that could cause grave and, in some cases, exceptionally grave harm to the national security. So one one thing is about, you know, is there a risk that this some information might have been uh, things that the Saudis would have wanted to know. But there's less extreme examples, too, just that there could be something in there even about the Saudis that he wanted to hide for to try to protect them. I mean, there's so many possibilities here. But I think that, um, uh, you know, my my best guess is that it is going to sort of some of the motivate motivate motivation, excuse me, for what appears to be potentially efforts to obstruct efforts, including misleading or even lying to his own attorneys. The fact that they are involving Trump organization officials in the search for this may, su- again, we don't know, but is that suggesting that Trump directed officers of his organization to potentially tamper with the surveillance footage that would have showed the boxes being moved around? There are so many questions. Mary McCord, we have to leave it there, but thank you for sticking around for double duty tonight. I sincerely appreciate it. My pleasure. Coming up, we're going to bring you not one, but two new bombshell stories today about payments benefiting Justice Clarence Thomas and his conservative activist wife. It is all happening all the time, everywhere, all at once. And it's up next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details.
In 2002, it was a $500 honorary membership to a club, $1,200 tires, and a $5,000 education gift from Mark Martin. And we're going to come back to that last one in just a second. In 2014, it was a $530 stained glass medallion from his alma mater, Yale Law School. In 2015, it was a bronze bust of Frederick Douglass, which was valued at more than $6,000. Those were some of the gifts that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas listed on his public disclosure filings over the years, in keeping with post-Watergate federal disclosure laws. While each of those reported items could raise some eyebrows on their own, they are not even the most interesting parts of Thomas's disclosure forms. For that, you have to look at what is missing from those forms. In the past month, ProPublica has reported on a litany of items, on trips and on payments for real estate that Justice Th- Clarence Thomas accepted as gifts from Texas billionaire and Republican megadonor Harlan Crow, gifts, gifts that Justice Thomas routinely failed to report. If you add up all the dollar amounts from ProPublica's reporting, the gifts amount to more than $1 million, and none of it showed up on the disclosure forms over the years. Today, ProPublica is out with new reporting about more money, this time tuition money that Crow paid to the schools on behalf of Justice Thomas's relatives, or relative. In the late 1990s, Justice Thomas took custody of his grandnephew, a man named Mark Martin, at that time a child. By the early 2000s, Thomas decided to send Martin to private high schools, and Harlan Crow stepped in to foot some of the bill. According to ProPublica, Crow paid Martin's tuition at two different schools, though the duration and the total sum of those payments remains unclear. In a statement to ProPublica, Mark Pauletta, another longtime friend of Clarence Thomas's, said Harlan Crow paid two years' worth of tuition at those schools, which would amount to about $100,000 of undisclosed tuition gifts. While NBC has not independently verified this reporting, Crow responded to ProPublica with a statement about how he supported tuition for many kids, and he did not deny the reporting. Now, Crow wasn't the only person who offered to Thomas tuition money. Remember, there was that 2002 financial disclosure form where Clarence Thomas reported a $5,000 gift for Mark Martin's education. That gift, that $5,000 gift, was from Earl and Louise Dixon, the owners of a Florida-based pest control company. As ProPublica reports, Thomas was very careful in accepting and disclosing that contribution. According to two journalists who wrote a biography of Thomas, at first Thomas was worried about the propriety of the donation. He agreed to accept it if the contribution was deposited directly into a special trust for Mark. And yet, when it came to Harlan Crow a multi-billionaire with an avowed and articulated interest in swinging the judiciary to the right, Justice Thomas stayed silent. And then there is Thomas's wife, Ginny. Tonight, the Washington Post is reporting that Ginny Thomas received tens of thousands of dollars for consulting work in 2012, as directed by Federalist Society leader Leonard Leo. The Post reports that Leo instructed Kellyanne Conway, who was at the time a Republican pollster, to bill a nonprofit organization that Leo advised and then use that money to pay Ginny Thomas. This was the same year that Leo's nonprofit filed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in a landmark voting rights case. In all, Kellyanne Conway's polling company paid Ginny Thomas and her consulting firm $80,000 between June 2011 and June 2012, with another $20,000 to come before the end of 2012. 
In a statement to the Post, Leonard Leo said in part, it is no secret that Ginny Thomas has a long history of working on issues within the conservative movement, and part of that work has involved gauging public attitudes and sentiments. The work she did here did not involve anything connected with either the court's business or with other legal issues. We are going to have a lot more on the implications of all of this coming up next. Before today, ProPublica had already revealed the previously undisclosed luxury vacations and private jet travel and real estate purchases that were benefiting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his family and were paid for by Texas billionaire Harlan Crow. Today, ProPublica added to that laundry list an estimated $100,000 worth of private school tuition for a relative that Thomas and his wife Ginny were raising as their own son. And just for the record, the justice who accepted, without disclosing, more than $100,000 to pay for school tuition is presumably weighing in at some point on a case challenging President Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt. Because as even Clarence Thomas can tell you, tuition can be really quite expensive. Joining us now are Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor for Slate and host of the Amicus podcast, and Tali Farhadian Weinstein, who, among many other titles, is a former Supreme Court clerk. Thank you so much for being here. Tali, the idea that at one point Thomas discloses this $5,000 gift from the owner of a pest control company and then chooses not to disclose what could be a $100,000 gift from a billionaire conservative activist, to me, and I'm not a lawyer, seems like some kind of consciousness of guilt. How do you read the discrepancy between those two things? Indeed. That's what lawyers call a bad fact. And uh, But it really, Alex, I think it shows what the bigger problem is here, because so much of what the justices can do in this space is voluntary. Mm -hmm. And so he could make the choice to disclose one thing and not another and then argue, well, I'm not really required to make all of the disclosures that other federal judges are. I mean, I think it's very clear that if he were a lower court judge, he would have had to reveal all of this. And so this is really, I think, broken open the problem with the system because judicial ethics it's two things. It's disclosure and then it's disqualification based on what you disclose. But if you don't tell us what the bad facts are. Right. Right. If you don't tell us what the potential conflicts or actual conflicts are, then we can't have an intelligent conversation about disqualification and about whether there's fairness really in the system. Yeah. Dahlia, to Tali's point about the different tiers here, there's there clearly are disclosure problems. But in terms of the disqualification, I thought this was so telling. Harlan Crow was asked by the Dallas Morning News whether he would be friends with Clarence Thomas if Clarence Thomas weren't a Supreme Court justice. And he said, it's an interesting, good question. I don't know how to answer that. Maybe not. Maybe yes. I don't know. I mean, there you have the man potentially admitting that he's only doing this for Clarence Thomas because he's a Supreme Court justice. This seems problematic as well. It's problematic in the extreme. And let's also note that Harlan Crow is asked, how did you become friends with Clarence Thomas after he's already on the bench? And Crow literally says, oh, I was flying him around on my plane and we became simpatico. So it's it's so clear that this was about 
him using his immense resources to buy proximity and access. And he cops to that. And so it's just to keep hearing them say, no, we're dear, dear, dear friends. We're dear friends when they are not lifelong friends. This is somebody who has curried access and favor and someone else who's been the beneficiary of that. And even though they may be dear, dear friends today, it doesn't change the fact that the relationship is predicated on one person wanting something and another person being a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I got to ask you, Tali, because you you clerked the the idea that a Supreme Court justice is riding around living the life of insane luxury that is unfathomable to even a lot of very rich people on a trip to the Caribbean. This is this the sort of the person for whom Clarence Thomas was a legal guardian. Mark Martin, he's, he recalls riding jet skis off the side of the billionaire's yacht. Roughly 20 years ago, Martin, Thomas, and the Crows went on a cruise on the yacht in the Russia in Russia and the Baltics. They toured St. Petersburg in a rented helicopter and visited a palace. I mean, we're talking about a level of, I'm not going to say corruption, though that is the word that I, <laughs> I just said, but a level of gift giving that exceeds like the wildest dreams of many. You know what it was like on the court back in the day. Would this be even imaginable in the era of Sandra Day O'Connor? Absolutely not, Alex. I mean, we, you know, as clerks, we get the window into their lives for a year or two. And they're public servants who are living the lives of public servants. You know, I, I remember when Justice O'Connor missed her flight once and had to wait at the airport and didn't move quickly enough to get to the line to get rebooked on some other flight. I mean, just the things that are part of daily life. And she wasn't flying private with the billionaire. <laughs> in, indeed, no. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing is, if you're going to conduct yourself this way, you're going to have this friendship, you know, it's, as they're calling it, you have to own it. You have to put it down on that piece of paper that is available online for everyone to look at so that we can figure out, are there, are there some cases that Justice Thomas should just not be sitting in uh, because of whatever you want label you want to put on it, whether you want to say friendship or something else. And, you know, you use that language of consciousness of guilt. It's the it's the culture of secrecy that I think is really the problem here. I mean, we actually have a pretty good framework for how to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, first find out what's up and then talk about what to do about it. But if, if you're not even going to be open about it, then how can we have faith? Well, and I think people presume guilt when there's so much secrecy. I have to ask you, Dahlia, because this is breaking news from just a few hours ago. The idea that Leonard Leo, who is the head of the Federalist Society, is effectively asking an organization he's only affiliated with to make secret payments to Ginny Thomas via Kellyanne Conway smacks of the worst kind of cronyism and corruption that we have in this country. How do you read the 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 sort of underground pipeline of cash that is being funneled, not just to Clarence Thomas, but to Ginny Thomas. I mean, Alex, I have to say, I thought I was incapable of shock. And I thought this morning's revelations about the school tuition were pretty shocking. And then to get this blockbuster reporting from the Washington Post that puts the lie to the notion that Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society and the groups that he's involved with 
are just benign debating societies, that they're just friends with the Thomases. I mean, this is kind of the whole enchilada splayed out for all of us to see. And, and as you say, it's not just that he's saying, quote, no mention of Ginny, of course, on the paperwork. Again, an admission that he knows that would be wrong. But to have this organization that's funneling money through Kelly Conway to Ginny Thomas, and then that this same organization is filing amicus briefs in Shelby County that comes down 5-4 with Clarence Thomas's deciding vote. This isn't a debate society. This isn't just an organization that's trying to shape or reshape the federal courts. This is an organization, a huge sprawling network of front groups and influence peddlers that is quite literally trying to buy the courts to reshape democracy itself. This is really a five alarm fire. And I think we should stop calling it an ethics problem. Mm -hmm. This is way beyond an ethics problem. Yeah, I, the Supreme Court is in crisis. I will say it. it. That is what is happening right now. Dahlia Lithwick and Tali Farhadi and Weinstein, it's great to see both of you guys. I'm sorry it is under these crisis circumstances. Thanks for your time tonight. We will be right back. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.